Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. So welcome uh, again, everyone. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, my name is Jenna Spinelli. I'm the founder of the Democracy Group Podcast Network and one of the hosts of the Democracy Works Podcast. And I'm delighted to be joined today by some of my colleagues in the network for a discussion about democracy's crises and thus far, perhaps the failure of imagination to solve them. I have a lot of questions for our panelists today, and I hope you do too. Uh, please put your questions in the Zoom Q&A box and we will get to as many as we can after some opening discussion. Today's event is being recorded and it will be available on our website, democracygroup.org, which is also where you can go to check out all of the podcasts in our network, sign up to receive our newsletter, and check out the informational guides we put together on topics like misinformation and gerrymandering. Uh, one last piece of, of housekeeping here, uh, some thank yous. First of all, a, a huge thank you to Democracy Group Network Manager Brandon Stover and Outreach Associate Claire Dentner for all of their work behind the scenes, not just on this event, but everything else that the network does. And thank you as well to the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State for providing the financial support that makes the Democracy Group Network possible. I think that's all of the housekeeping out of the way. So let's get to it and introduce the panel. Uh, first up is Lee Drutman, a senior fellow in political reform at New America, host of the Politics in Question podcast and author of Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, the case for multi-party democracy in America. Welcome, Lee. Uh, next up, uh, joining us from London today is Turi Munti, a journalist, entrepreneur, and founder of Parlia, which is a project to map the world's opinions and build a community to discover the ways in which they are connected. Turi is the host of Parlia's podcast on opinion. So Turi, thanks for taking time out of your evening to be with us today. Great to be with you. And last but certainly not least is Kara Ong Whaley, who is Associate Director of the James Madison University Center for Civic Engagement and host of the Center's Democracy Matters podcast. She's also the Vice Chair of the Civic Engagement Section of the American Political Science Association. So thank you for being with us, Kara. Thanks so much for having me, Jenna. Great to be with you all. So let's let's get to it. Um, apparently, the New York Times is on the same page as we are about democracy's failure of imagination. They recently launched a series called Wake Up America to explore how, in the words of historian Daniel Immerwar, America went from a country that's spry and excitable to one that's creaky and soft and whose bold, expansive political imagination has atrophied. In his piece, uh, M.O.R. was talking about America, but I think you could make some of those same claims about other Western democracies too. And while we have been in this prolonged state of atrophy, 
Uh, it feels like an entire genre has cropped up around this notion of democracy dying and or in an ongoing state of crisis. You don't have to look very far to or very hard to find the sentiments on social media, cable TV, op-ed pages, and yes, even podcasts. Uh, which brings me to my first question, and I'll ask Lee to, to get us started with this one, and others can, can jump in um, after that. So, you know, threats to democracy are certainly real, and we don't want to pretend like they're not. But I'm wondering how you think about the balance of, you know, how much should we be focusing on the crisis versus the, the solutions or the, the ways that we might get ourselves out of these, these crises of democracy? Well, that's a great question, Jenna. Uh, and, you know, I, I think there is a challenge here in uh, finding you know, uh, the right balance, because, you know, when it's crisis, 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 it, 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 we kind of develop this sense of learned helplessness, almost, that we're, we're in this moment in which we, you know, we're, we're, we're sinking and we can't think about the future. And that's, you know, uh, that's, that's a, a kind of poverty of, of thinking, really. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we, we are facing a real crisis. And what's happening in many of the states is something that, you know, is really not democracy anymore when you have one party that is using its power to try to entrench its advantage. Uh, nationally, when you have uh, one party that refuses to even acknowledge the violence that happened on January 6th and, and, to and tolerates extreme anti-liberalism and, and engages in a broad conspiracy, that's not democracy anymore. Uh, but uh, we are in a moment, I, I think, of tremendous transition in this country. We are becoming a multiracial, multiethnic democracy. Uh, American politics is really fully nationalized uh, for the first time with a genuine nationalized two-party system, which is a real threat. And you know, it's a moment of economic transition. Uh, it's a changing global dynamic. So all of these things are kind of coming together and you know, there, there are, I think, important structural reasons why we're having this crisis at this moment, but those same structural forces also point towards a potential for reimagination, which is a word that has come up over and over again uh, in, in my conversations in the last few years. Uh, so I, I think we can do both, but I think the balance has fallen too far towards crisis and we need more reimagining. Terry, Kara, anything to, to add there? Uh, perhaps how do we, so, you know, how do we move beyond, you know, getting, how do we get to that place of, of reimagining or what are some of the obstacles sort of standing in, in the way of that? So I, I think, and, and I think Lee already alluded to this and it's a good transition that, you know, there are a lot of really thoughtful conversations about how we can reimagine our democratic institutions, reimagine our democratic practices, reimagine our political systems and structures. Um, I, I think the challenge is, you know, are those who hold power willing to change and listen? 
Um, and what is it going to take to actually get that work done? I mean, I think we constantly need to reassess and critically analyze, you know, the sources of, you know, the, the crises and, and the, the challenges to democracy. Um, you know, the, it's, there's going to be a lot of changing dynamics, particularly in this, in this phase of complexity and, and transition. Um, but there, there are lots of ideas out there. There are lots of people wanting to be engaged and that have thoughtful ideas. Um, you know, the question is, you know, are, are the permission structures going to allow us to actually participate and change those systems? And I think that's a much harder project especially when we're talking about a political structure that has traditionally and historically been elitist, classist, and racist. Um, so I, I, I should flag the fact that I just don't, don't just come from Britain. I am in Britain, and therefore <laughs> I, my focus is, very, is going to be very European. You've got Kara and, um, and Lee to talk on the U.S. side, so maybe I can bring some <laughs> European perspective here, if that's okay. Um, but there are certain parallels in the kind of historical trajectories of the last few years between certainly the UK and the US. 2016, for example, was a year in which you guys elected Trump and we, um, we, we tried to leave Europe. It's taken us quite a long time to do that. But that referendum was, in a sense, as fracturing um, to our sense of collective identity in the UK as I think the Trump election was in the US. And I think like many of us, my first reaction at these two, I mean, to, to actually to both events was terror and panic and hyperventilation. Um, and actually, I think in a slightly more measured way, um, this question of Im an imaginative response to some kind of stagnation in the way that we think about democratic processes was occasioned by this great upheaval. So there is a, I've made my peace with Brexit, which I stood very firmly against, precisely because it, did, it was such a tremendously loud wake-up call to a particular way of thinking about politics in the UK. From my perspective, um, it took me, I suppose, eight years to realize that 2008 had completely upended the terms of the game, the nature of the conversation, what the Overton window was in which politics was discussed. And so there is... Um, we, it, it may actually be that the moments that we're in now, these last few years where everything seems profoundly polarized, quite violent, that we're incapable of talking to each other across multiple aisles, is actually are just coming to terms with the fact that the tectonic plates of politics and of economics have very, very much shifted across the West. So I look at these last few years as, in fact, something, you know, having calmed myself down and taken my pills and uh, gone for long runs, um, this is a moment in a sense of uh, revelation and that is always a good thing. So, so does it follow then, Turi, that um, from we will move through this, this period of, of revelation to perhaps different new imaginative solutions? You think that that's, that's inevitable? Um. <laughs> Let's, let's hope. Again, talk, talking in the U, from, from the UK and, and European perspective, um, a major shift has taken place in sort of the constitutional structure of the UK. We've come out of the European Union. That is a major reimagining of what politics looked like. And it's a huge shout towards this notion of sovereignty, which to many of us on the liberal side simply was, an, was, was kind of an invention, a polite fiction, a polite a, a sort of a, a space of discussion, which is badly framed to start with. But there's a major shift there. Um, there's been 
a series, as you, as you all know, of really quite radical changes in the political makeup of European countries, which you know, this I know is a point close to Lee's heart, do not have bi-party politics, where the opportunity for new political parties emerging has created an extraordinary sort of upheaval across Italy, across Spain, across France, across Germany with the AfD and the Green Party. Um, so we are here when there is a political structural constitution which allows for new voices to bubble up. We are sort of spinning those up. And I'm an eternal optimist. But actually, if we looked four or five years ago at what, what Europe was going to look like, there was this absolute terror that we were going to all end up looking a little bit like Viktor Orban's Hungary or the Kaczynski's Poland, where you end up with this sort of proto-democracy, deeply anti-liberal proto-democracy. But in fact, at the last municipal elections in France a week or two ago, the, um, the Rassemblement National, Le Pen's party, suffered massive defeats in the polls. So movement is, as I said, I'm an optimist. Movement feels like it's, it's better than stasis, full stop. Mm. Yeah. Um, Lee, what do you what do you make of of the this kind of notion from the the American context? Do you think that we there's sort of the the groundwork in in place to maybe move toward uh, different solutions or you know different different ways of of doing things moving forward? Well, absolutely, I do. Uh, I, I'm also an optimist. Uh, otherwise, I, you know, would be doing something else, perhaps buying land in, in British Columbia and and uh, you know, seeking to seeking Canadian citizenship or uh, moving to New Zealand or something. Uh, I, no, I uh, look. The, the U.S. has been through a, a series of ups and downs throughout our our history, and you know, the the thing about uh, the uh, long arc of American history is that we've had these periods of remarkable democratic renewal. Uh, I think there are tremendous parallels between this current era and the, the, the late Gilded Age, early progressive era, in which you see a flourishing of social movements building on dissatisfaction with the status quo and major changes. We, we have these moments of really transformational politics in the U.S. every 60 years or so, uh, you know, really going back to the revolution. You could even even go further back, um, you know, but, but the, uh, you know, revolutionary era, the Jacksonian democracy, the era of, of expansion of the franchise, the progressive era, the civil rights era. And th there seems to be something about uh, something almost endogenous. And, and I mean, uh, you know, uh, I think one should be rightly skeptical of, of cyclical theories. But at the same time, th there does seem to be this pattern in which there's, you know, crisis, you know, it's almost almost Hegelian, uh, you know, uh, you know, crisis, kind of stability, and then, you know, that stability creates a new crisis. I mean, if you look at, at European politics, and yeah, I mean, Western politics generally, in the 1990s, there was sort of this consolidation on this kind of third way neoliberal synthesis, and it seemed like everything was stable. But things cannot be stable for long, because at some, you know, a consensus fuels a new divide. And we see that new divide happening throughout. It's, it's a uh, you know, it is a, a cultural divide, it's an urban rural divide, and it's, you know, but it's, 
it's upending the kind of traditional political allegiances. And, you know, we see more flexibility in the more proportional European democracies in which the Greens and the Liberals are, are uh, you know, kind of rising as well as, you know, some voices on the on the populist, although those voices seem to be shifting away. It's only really in the in the countries with more uh, a binary conflict, the U.S., the U.K. And, you know, Hungary is also a country in which there's a clear binary divide between the cosmopolitan and, and traditional. Turkey also is a country with a clear binary divide between the cosmopolitan and the rural, but where there's not the space for that, that kind of necessary realignment. So the pressure builds, pressure builds, and either it will, you know, create a, a fundamental transformation in one direction or a fundamental transformation in another direction. But at some point, there, there will be a political earthquake in, in the U.S., and maybe we're in the midst of that. One thing just on that I would love to add in terms of thinking about the cyclical nature of this is also the ways in which we're seeing changing patterns of participation. Um, so there have been these moments where we've sort of, you know, decried the the loss of of uh, participation in our civic life, right? Um, you know, more more most recently, you know, Putnam I think encouraged a lot of us to become more involved in 2000 and, and kind of talked about the crisis of of uh, declining participation in civic life. And I think that is one area where I am hopeful that we do see more people looking to participate increasingly at the local level because things are not happening in the United States, at least at the national level. Um, and, and so, especially among younger people, I think this is a moment where, you know, there are opportunities to get involved and to, to leverage power and to, to participate you know, whether it's in school board meetings or or other uh, city council, right? Um, uh, and and so there's there's greater opportunity. And I think also a lot of interest in connecting and seeing how to make change on particular issues that people care about at the local level. And I'm even seeing this kind of percolate into the national conversation, like on climate change, for example, right? Where the the solutions to climate change, you know, even the New York Times recently. Um, you know, talked about how the solutions to climate change were going to be at the local level, right? So driving people then to participate more in, in local in, in their in local governance um, and with in, and with a range of, of actors. And so I think that's also kind of a, a positive trend, um, you know, where we haven't, you know, where there has been so much of a focus on nationalization um, of, of politics and and really less ability to to make change at that level. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, keeping with this this generational um, idea, Kara. I mean, do you get the sense that the the students that you you work with are kind of receptive to this this notion of getting involved at the local level? I imagine it's also competing with the same pressures we all face in our media diets of you know national, national, national. Maybe not quite to the degree now that it was when you know Donald Trump was on Twitter every single day, but it's still as as we've said, politics has become very much nationalized. So how how are kind of the the kids these days, so to speak, uh, thinking about uh, some of those those points you were just making? Well, I'm, I'm only on one campus, so mm. I can I can only talk about our campus, but we do have a pretty comprehensive assessment program. And um, and actually, we, we are seeing a change um, you know, our program has is, is only three full years old, but we are actually seeing changes um, already among the cohorts. 
and students are coming in more politically attuned. And they're also, we're seeing changes over time um, in terms of their political participation as they're being exposed um, to opportunities for political and civic participation, especially at the local level. Um, so we have, and we have assessment data to, to show this, at least for, for our campus. Um, I, I, I think more broadly, you know, from national surveys, you know, um, Circle at Tufts and um, the Institute for Democracy and Higher Education, you know, has voting rates. You know, we are seeing, you know, an increase in political participation more broadly, but not always and necessarily a connection between um, okay, I care about issue X and here's what I can do to solve it, right? Um, but there's also, I think, a great deal of skepticism that, you know, the, the means of participation that are traditionally offered to young people, especially voting, um, really make a difference in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, being able to make change on what they care about, right? So there, there is not really uh, a great deal of confidence that uh, you know, they're in terms of, you know, their, their ability, their, their efficacy and ability to change these, change the systems and structures um, through the kinds of participation that's being offered them. And so I think that's really, I mean, my area of focus is really thinking about how we offer and, and provide ways, meaningful ways to participate and really become part of the conversations and not just conversations and deliberations, but really meaningfully change the systems and the structures to be more responsive. Sure. So, you know, we were, I was talking about the, the media and I, I wonder, uh, you know, again, going back to this whole crisis framing, obviously, uh, you know, crises sell, it leads to clicks, it leads to, to ratings, it leads to all of these things. I know that, that all of you have experience in, in media in, in, in some respects, whether as a, a journalist or people, you know, people who have interacted with the media as a source, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think about um, the role that the, the media might play here? Is, is this kind of crisis narrative being hyped up too much in, in, you know, in favor of or, or at the expense of more solutions focused or you know, ways to maybe utilize the media to push forward new ideas, you know, regardless of, of, of what those might be? Lee, do you want to take this for the US and then perhaps I can chime in? <laughs> Sure. You know, I mean, so I think to the extent that there's, you know, public nonprofit media, uh, that's better. Uh, but I do think that we kind of put too much emphasis on on the media in a lot of these conversations. Not that the media is unimportant, but I, I think the, you know, there, there is a, a way in which, you know, conflict will always sell. I mean, that, that is, we are drawn to conflict. There's something about it at, at, a, at a psychological level. And frankly, conflict is, can, be, can be good in, in the sense that, that it draws us in. It makes us feel that, that, that there's something that we care about. And, you know, consensus is, you know, politics, consensus, you know, is often exclusionary. And politics is always going to be about the issues where we disagree. So it's not so much about 
conflict as it is about the type of conflict and the way in which we treat each other as part of that conflict. Uh, and, you know, he, here, I, you know, I really come down hard on, on the problem with, with binary politics because of the way that it charges our brains in this us against them thinking. You know, on a, on a recent episode of uh, Politics in Question, or I guess an episode that we'll actually, well, that we recorded, but we'll premiere, we had Amanda Ripley on who has this new book, High Conflict. Um, you know, and, and she's done a lot of thinking and talking to people about the psychological effects of conflict. And, you know, it, it's clear that when you get in this binary conflict that's really identity based, you know, it, you have a very hard time resolving that. So the key is really getting out of that. And this is, you know, why I keep coming back to the political structure that the media can only report on the poli- the underlying politics. Uh, you know, the media can't create you know, uh, you know, a, a different politics than the politics that that exists. And there's this symbiotic relationship between the media and political figures. And they both think that, that the other side is, has too much power. Uh, but uh, we we can't expect the, the you know, the, the press to be entirely different and, and or nor can we entirely change the structure uh, of media. We can change the, the structure of politics and the media incentives and narratives and and confrontations that that flow from that uh so i yeah that's that's where i come down in short i think that i mean and and more broadly you know the problem of disinformation and misinformation mm-hmm. that 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 we, we focus a lot on the supply problem but we focus very little on the on the demand problem mm-hmm. that we have to understand like why is it that this whole stop the steal narrative is so popular uh and it's because political elites are selling it and uh why are they selling it? It's because people want to buy it because people want to feel like they're winners, even when they're losers. Yeah, we, we did a really interesting episode of Democracy Works with Peter Pomerantov, who some of you may know, uh, studies a lot about misinformation and, and, and propaganda, but he talked about precisely that. How do you address this from the demand side and give people a, a positive vision, something to, to look forward to, to, you know, feel hopeful about. Uh, so perhaps they might not be drawn into some of these darker, you know, rabbit holes and, and conspiracy theories and, and all of that. Um, so if you're interested in this, I would recommend checking out his work. But Turi, please. Uh, we interviewed Peter as well. He's an old <laughs> friend. And um, we, we should all probably make sure that we're not, not doubling and tripling up with our guests, actually. <laughs> Reinforcing narratives Indeed. terribly. Indeed. Um, but um, no, he's, he's, he's super interesting because, of course, from his perspective, the, the key problem is not conflict. The key problem is the relativization of any possibility of truth, right? And so when he talks about what Russia's, Russia's misinformation campaigns, Russia doesn't need you to believe one thing. Russia needs you to not be able to trust anything because then the whole thing falls over. Um, and yeah, so just to, to go back to Lee's point, um, we interviewed a wonderful guy called Ian Leslie on uh, on Opinion, whose book is called Conflicted, where he doesn't just um, accept that conflict is going to be around, but he celebrates it. He's, he has this great line, which is, conflict is information. And um, it's perhaps going back to the first thing that I said, that actually when you start seeing these sort of factions and tribes building themselves up and attacking each other, it tells you huge amounts of information about the society that you're, that you're in. And... Um, I'm excited by that. Again, 
the key point is to work out how you do it. And so to Kara's point about a younger generation being deeply frustrated, and I think I see that here, and I see that with my European family across, across continental Europe as well, there is this sense that the voting cycles are too long, that the split, the values split between old and new or old and young is just too big to be, um, to be broached over a series of election cycles. The urgency of climate change is not something that can take gentle, ongoing, liberal, iterative discourse. And so th- there's, there's some really interesting conflict in its own right. What people my age and older see is not so much that democracy is at threat, but actually that liberalism and the principles of liberalism are at threat. Everybody's still voting if that's what we think democracy is. But what's happening is we're finding it very difficult to talk to each other. And when older people look at what's happening across universities and the deplatforming issues and the roads must fall and the statues debate, et cetera, et cetera, what they see is the end of liberalism, the end of discourse as we understood it um, in a younger population. What I think makes much more sense to see this as is I think exactly the way that Kara, I think, is describing it, which is politics by other means. It's an acceleration of the conflict just on different terms. And it's deeply disturbing because we had a model to do this stuff. We'd all, you know, back, you know, I'm English, so we all wear our wigs and we dress up in our funny gowns and we agree to address each other as the right honorable lady and the right honorable gentleman. And then we start flinging pots at each other. That we can't do um, because the debate is being accelerated by an alternative form of discourse. That, that I think is sort of fascinating. Yeah, and to, oh, go ahead, Kara. I was just gonna say, I think we also, for me, I also try to consider like why the debate is accelerating too. And and I I, I think, you know, there's, when I think about the statues debate, for example, um, you know, and, and this is an ongoing thing, um, here in Virginia, and, and I was in Charlottesville in 2017, and and that the University of Virginia, um, you know, on the evening and the days that uh, 2017 happened, um, you know, I, I think there's there's a real questioning not just of politics of usual as usual, but who has had the opportunity to define uh, the terms of the debate, and who has had the ability to uh, uh, make the rules of the systems and the structures. And I, and I think that's, that is really kind of at the heart of it. Um, you know, I think we're not even on the same page in many ways uh, in terms of what democracy is and what it means. Um, and, and that's, I think, generational. It's by education. It's by class. Um, I, I see it kind of surfacing in, in, at many different levels. And, and I think that's also deeply problematic. Um, but to you know, think about and, and reinforce something that Tori said, um, you know, something that uh, um, uh, Robert Talese, who's been a guest on Democracy Matters and on Democracy Works with Jenna, uh, with Jenna um, you know, this, this notion that the idea uh, of civility, um, the protest is not incompatible with civility, conflict is not incompatible with civility. Um, but I think we do kind of need to work out, um, you know, how can we come to agreement on on what the rules and, of the game are going to be? And I, and I think that's where where it's going to be much harder, um, particularly in this moment. Yeah, and and on this, oh, go ahead, Terry. No, no, I was going to I, I was going to clap re- resoundingly and, and and agree. Um, 
Tony Blair, who has an unfortunately terrible reputation, although you know centrist, open, hyper-liberal politician, um, he, he, he may have cocked up the Iraq war, but he recently um, wrote a long article explaining where we were in the world. And he was decrying the lack of radicalism amongst the young. He was like, there's, there's no really interesting politics coming out of the young. And that, so we don't have really interesting new economic theory. We don't have a new theory of international relations. We don't understand our place inside the world. We haven't worked out alternatives to globalization. And that's why the young faff around arguing about the identity, which is to miss the whole point, because it may turn out that actually the debate that's being played out here is to, to repurpose carers' um, sort of formulation framing of this care. If you don't mind, and please tell me if I got this wrong, but it's that actually this reformulation of what democracy is, the biggest fight is around identity. Who gets to articulate the terms of the deal uh, or the terms of interaction? And that's fascinating and that's super problematic because one of the things that Lee was referring to right, sort of right at the beginning, this you know, refusal to accept uh, election results, the storming of the capital, um, what we're seeing there is a, is a real concern about what the rules are and a real concern that you, can, that you can't trust the umpires. So when you're on top of it, you've got a huge younger generation who are, going, who are saying, the rules are all wrong. We need to start them again. We need to write those things from scratch before even appointing the new kind of umpires for it, which is, in a sense, what deplatforming is all about, umpiring. Um, we, we're at a meta level of argument, which we're not even close to being able to figure out a way of doing, to Talisa's point, civilly. Mm-hmm. Um, so thinking about this notion of, of liberalism and institutions and, and who gets to, to set the rules, Lee, I know you focus a lot uh, on these topics on, on politics in question. Um, how are you, you feeling about the ability of liberal democratic institutions to keep up with this, this you know, accelerating pace of, of change we've been talking about? And has your thinking on that perhaps changed as you've been doing the course of the show or, or your, your other work in this area? Well, I mean, this is a moment of both tremendous stuckness and tremendous instability. And those things are really two sides uh, you know, of the same coin to, to use a, a cliche that doesn't seem to actually fit here. Uh, so, uh, you know, liberal democracy, uh, you know, there, there's both the liberal part and the democracy part. And you know, as, as many people have noted, those things have become somewhat separated. And what we've lost in that is the understanding that those two points, that, that those two pieces that have long been fused together uh, really need each other uh, because liberalism uh, conditions us to be OK with other perspectives and to be okay with losing elections and to be willing to, uh, you know, tolerate minority rights and dissent. And, you know, democracy only works if we can tolerate dissent and we can tolerate losing. I mean, you know, a minimalist definition of democracy is it's a system in which parties lose elections. And, you know, I think there are folks who have, you know, uh, grown frustrated with, uh, you know, either or both of those two pieces. There are, you know, folks who say, you know, particularly on the political right, who say, you know, we, we don't need, there, there's a, a, an emerging strain of, uh, of thinking in the, you know, among, among 
conservative pundits saying, you know, we don't need democracy. What's important is having liberty. But what they fail to understand is that the strongest protector of liberty is democracy. Uh, there, so, you know, I, th- I think there's a, a loss there. And then, you know, from the kind of a, a liberal populace, the, you know, uh, side that, you know, all, all we need is democracy and we'll just have elections and the people will decide there's a failure to understand that people are diverse and are not one thing. And you know, I, I, you know, I, I do think that there are historical cycles and we constantly have to relearn these fundamental truths because they, you know, it's, it's easy to take things for granted. And I think in the U.S. there's a sense that, oh, well, of course, the U.S. is always going to be a democracy because we've, we've always been a democracy. And there's a failure to understand that these things are, are fragile. Uh, in the same way, I think there was a failure. Uh, in many ways, I feel like we're thinking about the collapse of democracy in the U.S. in the way that we were thinking about the coronavirus in January of 2020, which is a sense that this is this is a threat, but it couldn't possibly happen here because we've never experienced anything like this in our lifetimes. And now, you know, as we begin to come out of the pandemic, we're taking public health or a lot of us are taking public health seriously in a different way. So, you know, in a sense, we, we may have to go through a, a, another collapse in order to rebuild again. And that just seems to be the, the cycle of thing. I, I hope the threat of it is enough to, to lead us to rebuild. But uh, my, my fear is that things will have to get worse before they can get better. Right. Uh, so I have I have one more question for all of you, and I think we'll turn to some audience Q&A. And, and just a reminder, if you do have a question, please put it in the Zoom Q&A box. We've had a couple come in so far. But, you know, there are all kinds of, 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 of initiatives and, and efforts out there to try to do some of this reimagination that we've we've been talking about, um, you know, whether it's it's advocating for. Uh, ranked choice voting or or multi-member districts or some of the efforts to reform money in politics. There's any any number of organizations. I know a lot of the people that listen to our respective podcasts are people involved in in those organizations. Uh, so but it's it seems at least to me anyway, and, and if you disagree with this, please tell me, but it's a very sort of closed loop ecosystem right now. We're all very good at talking to each other, uh, but maybe there's this whole other group of, of people out there that has no idea that any of this is happening or even that things could be a different way. So what do you think that, you know, some of these these efforts need without maybe focusing on, on one in particular, but, you know, what, is, what do some of these new ideas need to be able to get that oxygen to get into more mainstream political thought and, and activity? I can be short and brief on this. I mean, they need access. Um, they need access to positions of power and and then not to be changed once they get to those positions of power, right? Um, I think, you know, there's there's a tendency, um, maybe I'm I'm speaking from a position of pessimism at an institution of higher education where I see people who tend to rise up in the ranks of power tend to not be um, as, as progressive or as imaginative, right? Um, depending on, on, you know, as they rise in the ranks. Um, and, and that's sort of similar, right? It's, it, there's sort of a moderating effect 
um, that that power seems to have. And so, I mean, I think at a larger level, that's an issue. Um, you know, and also going back to an earlier question about the media. I mean, certainly the media could be providing more attention to a lot of these efforts and taking them seriously, which, you know, yes, we, we know there's lots of studies showing that the media have um, a bias towards the most dramatic and, and um, you know, it's just not sexy enough to, to focus on a lot of these reform efforts. Um, but, but certainly we could, you know, try to do more to, to work and, and triangulate um, you know, with the media, with those in positions of power to really elevate these ideas. Um, but I don't want to sort of, again, dismiss this notion that, you know, I think there's there's great ideas out there. There's, there's great laboratories, particularly on like ranked choice voting um, at the state and local level. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of ideas to end. But like, if I think about gerrymandering, for example, right, there's, there's excellent data out there. Um, you know, uh, Lawrence Lessig had Sam, um, Sam Wang from, from Princeton's gerrymandering project on his episode. I listened to that over the weekend and there's some great, um, work that's being done in that area. But the question is that, you know, will the, you know, there, there's, there's a problem with those in power, um, to actually accept the results because it would mean, you know, they think it means they're, they're thinking in terms of zero sum and they think it means giving up power as, as they know it. Right. And, and power wants to ensure um, that, that they perpetuate their, their own positions. Um, and, and so that's a real challenge that even those of us, you know, those of us who are working for uh, democratic reform um, for, for greater participation, I think face is that, you know, we're, we're kind of locked out of, out of the system, the way it is currently structured. Lee, Terry, anything to add there before we move to audience questions? I'm going to defer to Lee. I can tell you about the problems of the Conservative Party in a one-party state in the UK, but maybe that's not so interesting to your listeners. Yeah, I mean, I'm eager to hear the, uh, hear the audience questions. Okay. Oh, great. I know Claire has been uh, keeping an eye on them for us. Uh, Claire is a student at Penn State and has been doing a lot of work in for us uh, in the, the network this summer. Um, so what do we have, Claire? And we have a lot of really interesting questions to start off. Um, one viewer wrote, many people, especially older people, complain that much of the breakdown today comes in the form of people becoming worse at listening to each other, especially listening to unfamiliar views. Um, in other words, uh, that too many people have lost this uh, any sense of curiosity. Um, what do our panelists think of this notion? Well, I'll, I'll jump in here. Um, you know, I, I, I think one of the challenges in the, in the U.S. certainly is that we've had this partisan sorting over many decades uh, in which you know, the Republican Party has you know, overwhelmingly become the, the rural party. You know, ex-urban, you know, traditionalist Democratic Party has become uh, you know, the, the cosmopolitan urban party. So we, we've had this process whereby more and more people are surrounded by people who have the same uh, political affiliations and allegiances and identities as them. 
And, you know, that, that leads people <clears throat> to kind of conform with each other. And there, there is a, a lot of research suggesting that when people are surrounded by like-minded people, they tend to become more solid in their opinions and, you know, less willing to venture uh, alternative viewpoints because that puts them, them out of step with the people who uh, they consider their friends and, and who are their coworkers. And, you know, so, I mean, what we are social creatures as humans, we want to conform most of us, except for a few, you know, a few idiosyncratic folks who like to, to be contrarians. Most of us want to conform and, and, and be with people who are like us. Now, uh, a, a long standing classic finding in political science is that in order for democracies to be stable, you need what political scientists would refer to as cross cutting cleavages. That is, you know, you need to kind of have different affiliations and different networks that point you in different ways. And that's what leads to the kind of uncertainty and, uh, and questioning and openness to alternative viewpoints that, you know, I, I think there's a, a lot of tendencies to say, oh, people need to be better. Uh, you know, we need to be more open to alternative viewpoints. But the reality is that, that, that we are, you know, embedded in networks, we are embedded in communities. And, you know, to the extent that the communities push us into these, you know, very, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, echo, very, very cocooned echo chambers. It, it's hard for us to break out of them because to break out of them is to undermine our place in, in communities, you know, that are really isolated from each other. Uh, so I think we have to think more about the structure of the political system that pushes us into these echo chambers and epistemological cocoons. Uh, and that, that's, the, that's the big problem here. I mean, we, we've, we built um, a company uh, to try and address precisely this issue. I don't know who the, who the questioner was here, but yeah, we built something called Palia. We're building something called Palia. Uh, which is trying to work as a sort of an encyclopedia of all ideas, all arguments, to try and better help each other um, read the other side, engage with the other side. And um, talking to some of the things that Lee said here, we started off building this in a very sort of 18th century sort of enlightenment kind of approach as a Wikipedia and worked out that actually the fundamental thing about opinions is, yes, their form and the argument structures within them, but it's, but it's really the human part of it, which is the thing which triggers people one way or another. Um, Lee's just talked about this feature of sort of group polarization, the fact that when you get into your little gang, the more time you spend in there, all virtue accrues to you, the more radical you get inside it. So there's no possible social benefit in sort of crossing the aisle or being contrarian or engaging with the other side. Um, We see that in in the US and the UK, these two-party systems, the the democratic system, in fact, um, it promotes that kind of sorting that Lee's been talking about. Um, People talk about sorting not as a bug, but as a feature of this two-party democracy, and that's not at all a good thing. Um, We've we've mentioned the media in a couple of different ways, um, thinking about sort of responses to democracy's crises. Um, But here, I very much feel like the media is um, a central part of, of the issue. Um, we live in a moment of massive information surplus. 
in a in a way that you know people talk about every every generation every time that you know it's if it's the, not the TV it's the radio if it's not the radio it's the invention of Gutenberg's printing press but we have way too much content at our disposal and um, the, the art I have friends inside the artists community who now talk about a kind of an age of anxiety an age of the extreme self we're constantly reflected back against ourselves we're constantly reminded about what the world is around us and um, I think it's deeply destabilizing. We're constantly trying to work out where we sit in the world. And therefore, I think our desire to rush towards tribes that can protect us is, um, is accelerated. And you find that very much on these oppositional social networks like Facebook and Twitter, Twitter perhaps most of all, but Reddit too, where um, we're sorted because actually there is threat in not being part of a team. And so I think that's a fundamentally problematic piece. And um, we were, you, you were mentioning to Lisa earlier, who would like us all to go off and fish with our buddy who's on the other side of the aisle or go play bowls or wh whatever it might be. Um, yes, the response to democracy's crises has to be local, but that feels like so ultra-local that it doesn't count as a response. I mean, this is just too, too, too long a game to be playing. Um, one of the approaches that we've taken and the reason for our podcast really is that um, my hope is that if people understand that the opinions that they hold are not really theirs, that the opinions that they hold uh, are really the product of context, of parents, of their social media, possibly even of their genes, there's a chance they're slightly more um, tolerant and excited and interested in the opinions that other people who've also generated them in that entirely arbitrary way um, will also hold. So that's the sort of fundamental driver here. And then we go back to this question of the only point of, from my perspective here in the UK at least, the only, the, the, the one big thing that we can do is remind people what democracy is, which is democracy to use, I can't remember who, who first comes up with this idea, but it's a lovely one, this idea of an infinite game, a game that you always want to keep playing, that you cannot win because it, winning isn't the process. And um, the way that you guarantee that it's infinite is by ensuring that the, 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 the buck passes, the ball changes side. And that's, a, that's, the, that's the tricky one when um, you don't trust the rules anymore. Right, and that kind of brings up a, a somewhat cynical thought that, that I've had that sort of this, you know, if we really push on, there's an opportunity for people in, in power, to your point, Kara, to really like hype up this notion of, yeah, local, 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 you know, go, go do these things with your neighbors, et cetera. And then all the while they're like over here doing this other thing. And so I think there's like a, a level of not just, you know, braveness and going against the, the grain and doing what's not what comfortable out of your tribe, but also like a, a vigilance about it to make sure that, you know, yeah, we're not getting played here or there's, there's not this sort of ulterior motive that's that's going on. Yeah, I think also, you know, a lot of what we have been talking about um, also is uh, steeped in uh, liter psych uh, psychology and literature and in-group out-group theory. And, you know, one of the things that psychologists have said, you know, to to sort of overcome this, this problem um, is, is to give some sort of overarching aim that both groups can work on together. Um, so that's kind of what we have to figure out. Um, you know, how can we bring the the groups together? And if you look at periods of, um, you know, going back to what Lee said earlier in terms of, you know, we, we have these kind of cycles in American history. Um, you know, we do have these cycles of of deep hyperpartisanship, 
um, and, and polarization that tend to only be broken when there's a war or some external threat, right? Um, and, and this sort of period in American politics where, where there is a consensus, you know, we've, we've got the, co- the Cold War was happening, right? And so that kind of keeps things together um, somewhat at, at the domestic level. Um, and, and so that's, you know, a, both, pessimi- both a pessimistic views, um, but also one that might, you know, hopefully get us to think about, you know, what is some sort of overarching goal or aim where both groups can, can feel like they're contributing in some sort of common mutual um, objective. And, and uh, again, and also getting away from this zero-sum thinking that really seems to dominate uh, our, our politics. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, uh, that, that topic of, of finding common cause uh, is something that I'm interested in exploring, perhaps in, in a, a future discussion like this. I think it often gets conflated with the notion of finding common ground, which may perhaps come from, from a previous era. And so I'm, I'm excited to lean into those distinctions a little bit more um, with perhaps some other folks from, from our network as well. But uh, Claire, why don't you get one more question here for us to, to close things out? Great. Um, looking more at specific um, ways to deal with this challenge, um, Michael asks, are nonpartisan combined primar- primaries and multi-member districts in either or, or could getting both be a good aspiration, a goal? Um, I, I tend to be somewhat skeptical of nonpartisan political reforms because I think parties are really the essential institutions in politics and kind of give us structure. Uh, you know, I, I think more specific, I'm obviously a big advocate for multi-member districts with some proportional voting rule, which would allow us more parties. Uh, in, uh, However, there's a challenge in the U.S. Senate, which is that the U.S. Senate is inherently going to be a single winner election. So uh, for that reason, you know, I think the, the, the new uh, approach that Alaska is taking, which is a top four open primary with ranked choice voting. Um, I, ideally, I think that the advocates are moving more towards a top five model with ranked choice voting. I think that's a, a, a good reform for the Senate with and with multi-member districts plus ranked choice voting for the House, which would get us to a more proportional multi-party uh, democracy. So that would that would be what I would endorse. Um, Kara, Terry, anything to, to add there? Otherwise, I think we can maybe get one more question. Uh, uh, Claire, why don't you uh, queue up one last one? And this will be the last question of the day. Great. Um, so Odell has been thinking for some years about uh, imagining a new system built from the concept of liquid democracy. Um, he's come to believe that liquid democracy has a lot of potential, but it seems that most researchers treat it as an idea that is so silly it isn't worth serious thought. Can any panelists recommend researchers, books, or journal art- articles that focus on the idea of liquid democracy um, so that he can better understand the idea in general thinking, if anybody's familiar with it? I'm familiar with the idea of liquid democracy, um, which is the idea that you kind of delegate your voting privileges to uh, intermediaries who know more about specific issues than you do. Um, You know, I I, I think it's an intriguing idea in smaller groups, uh, but at a national level, I think political parties 
you know, and other intermediary interest groups like labor unions or, you know, uh, uh, like serve that role, uh, that there are a lot of ways to get information. And what we really need is just, you know, having having more choices uh, in our democracy. Uh, I I haven't done a ton of research into liquid democracy and, you know, maybe there's something that that I'm missing, but based on the conversations that that I've had, I kind of share the more common skepticism that it's any that it's a, a something that's practicable at, at, at anything other than a, than a very local small scale level. Yeah. Well, perhaps that's something for all of us to think about as we're planning the next seasons of our respective podcasts, a topic to, to focus more on or, you know, revisiting some of these themes we've been talking about today. Uh, I know there were some questions that we did not get to. Um, thank you all for submitting them, but I do want to be respectful of, of everyone's time today. Uh, just to reiterate, uh, this, this event was recorded and will be posted on our website, democracygroup.org, which is where you can go to sign up for our newsletter, check out all of the podcasts in our network, all 14 of them, uh, learn more about what we're up to. And we do want to do, as I said, more of these conversations. I think there's a lot of, of expertise and interesting perspectives within our group. So I have some ideas, but I would certainly love to hear um, if you have, have ideas for topics that we should, should address in this sort of roundtable format. Um, you can feel free to reach out to Brandon, uh, Brandon at democracygroup.org. That will go to network manager, Brandon Stover, um, who can help catalog those ideas for us. But thank you, Lee. Thank you, Tori. Thank you, Kara, for your time and your expertise today. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you, Claire, for your help. And uh, thank you to all of you for joining us. And uh, enjoy the rest of your day, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.